Hello and welcome back again to the Game Pit. This is episode 74. I'm Sean and we are continuing our Essen Madness. This is the final one of our four treasure hunts. Our fifth build-up to Spiel 2016. It's the most we've ever done. We hope you've enjoyed them. We hope they've been of some use to you. Hope if you're going to Essen, they've helped you sort out your list. But we've got 12 more for you. 12 games we haven't yet played but we've had a good look at and we're going to decide sean whether they are treasures or they are traps yes Ryan, we're gonna do our level best to actually peg them from afar just but as ronan said please do not take our word for gospel we have not played these games Indeedy, indeedy. Our next episode will be from Sean and Natalie from Essen itself, so you'll get some live coverage. And after that, we'll have a couple of roundup shows of all the games we've played. So please do enjoy this episode coming up. And please have a comment on our Board Game Geek Guild if you've got anything to say about a whole Essen coverage. Every year we're looking to improve it and get into it more. So whether you've enjoyed this number of previews, it's too many, too few, whatever you want to say, just let us know. Because obviously we'd like for you to enjoy the show. Well, some of you. Well, just a select few, maybe. Yeah, not that bloke. He knows who he is. <laughs> As always, Ronan, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the Dice Tower and the Dice Tower Network for news, views, and reviews of the gaming world. If you wish to download our episodes, go to Podbean, iTunes, and Stitcher. So we're going to kick off our dozen games this time around with eight epics. This is from AEG and Can I Factory. It's got a playtime of 15 to 60 minutes. It's quite wide ranging because there's a wide ranging player count for this one. It's one to eight players. The designer is Sejay Kanai. He's very famous for designing Love Letter, Lost Legacy, Chronicle and many, many others. In the game, the players will control eight heroes who will face five cataclysms over five rounds and they're going to cooperatively be using dice to defeat these cataclysms and hope to win the game. Now there are only 16 cards in this, same as Love Letter, that's probably a little bit of note. So when you draw a cataclysm, it's got three levels of challenge on it and you're going to have to defeat all three levels between you in order to move on to the next cataclysm. And the levels are going to be something like you have to all roll above a certain number on your dice or below a certain number on your dice or roll a certain number of dice that are all the same, seven fours or whatever it may be. On your turn, you may use your own power or if there are not full eight powers in the game, you may use the power of any unused character and they'll all be placed in the middle. Now, the powers that the characters have are to add dice to your pool, which would be good if you need to get a higher number, remove dice, good for a low number, flip your dice over from one to a six, vice versa, do re-rolls. Each hero can only use their power once per challenge, but there's powers then that they just reactivate a used hero or to heal a hero. And why would you need to heal a hero? Because in order to activate any of the powers, you're going to have to spend a life point from that hero that have between three and six life points between them. If you survive five cataclysms as a team, you win eight epics. Sean, any thoughts on it? I'm always one that likes these sort of Yahtzee-style games. I'm really into them. And this one had me hooked at the beginning for sure with the gorgeous artwork, Ronan. That, 
I, I saw it described as cat lady tarot style. Right. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant until I looked at the artwork and I went, I, I can kind of see where they're coming from. I actually don't mind the artwork, but I can see that it's a little bit over the top. I'm thinking more the AEG version when that comes out, Rodan. I've seen the artwork for that, and that just looks really, really stunning. The Japanese version, yeah, it's pretty cool. I like it. It's very stylized. But yeah, the AEG version, I think that's where it's at, and that's, that's what I'm thinking about. Mm, it's not a full disagreement, but... I'm not that fast. I'm much, much more concerned about the gameplay anyway. I have concerns, Sean. <laughs> I have concerns too. Oh, let's go. Oh. Well, you, you tell me your concerns. They're probably the same as mine. Well, it's a solo game. That's it. Yeah. It's not an eight-player game. <laughs> it certainly isn't. And there's no teamwork or anything like that. It's just use a power, use a power, use a power, use a power. We've done it. <laughs> Boom. Done. There's, there's no communication, there's no changing threat, there's we either roll it or we don't. If we haven't rolled it, we use some powers. If we have rolled it, great. Job done, let's move think, on. Yeah. The fewer the players you have, the more choices you have. I think you've got more obviously more of these heroes in the middle of the table that you've got a choice of. Can you imagine playing with eight players? Just rubbish. <laughs> Just be rubbish. Right. So you roll three dice regardless, and then yeah. your choice is to either take a hit and use your special power or not and then you're out for the round yeah i think it could work yeah. in a small group if as long as you're all comfortable with each other and you're comfortable with allowing someone else to make decisions for you because the first person to roll is gonna have to be like well i'm gonna have to use that power there or this power there meaning you don't get access to it it's just a funny system that all eight mm. heroes are in every game my slight concern is that there's so many powers in there that these mitigated the luck in the roll of the dice but also it feels to me like there's a bit of fun mitigation going on because there doesn't seem to be that much risk. It's very mechanical. It is. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious what are the more powerful heroes to use in each round. So if you've got to get all ones, the ones that can flip a six to a one or can give you a straight one, obviously they're the ones you're going to use more often than not. And there's some that you're just not really going to use ones that give you a straight up six or something like that so as you said there's not a lot of choices it is very mechanical and also i think that it's probably a little bit long for what it is because some of those challenges are going to take actually quite a long time so some of them have got two three or four stages so we talked about in some games especially bigger euros many small boring steps to get somewhere they've managed to put it into a micro game many small boring steps to get somewhere what's the point in having a micro game if you're having these so many tiny little things to get where you want to go uh, Sean sum up for us on 8 epics yeah I was really excited at first the artwork hooked me I love a Yahtzee style as I said at the top of the segment but yeah it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of fun there's no decisions there's no co-op involved and for me it's going to have to be a trap to me it comes across as a good print and play idea if it was free and I'd just print it out and rolled a few D6, I'd be happy to play it like that. But in terms of investable and buying and trying to put fancy artwork on it and making a proper product, £20, pound, whatever, no, 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 no. I don't think there's enough here. I'm afraid 8th Epic's coming in as a trap for me too. Strangely enough for me, Rodan, I'm not going to go to a massive thematic game. I'm going to go to an abstract. You've made a couple of curious choices at the beginning of this episode. I won't lie I to you, mate. I... 
I've deliberately tried to mix it up and not go for my usual style, and this this really isn't my usual style. It's Agamemnon. It's from Osprey Games, designed by Gunter Cornet, and it's a two-player abstract with players acting well. Let's say as ancient Greek gods during the Trojan War, but that's really is pasted on that theme the game board that you're going to be playing on is a series of circles connected by tracks and these tracks come in three different types players are going to take turns placing discs on the circles in order to win each connecting track of the same type each disc will have a power there is war with spear strength you have leaders and they range from a to e you have discs that break a continuous line once that allows players to swap two tracks and this is all done to try and win these track types one is won by your war strength one is won by the highest leader value and the last one is a bit by the amount of your discs on the line this is for each connecting row and that is agamemnon Ronan. yes now osprey games making more and more of an impression. We've talked about Let Them Eat Cake, you know, the fans of Ravens of Three Sashiri. They present games very well. Now, this is well made. It comes in a lovely box, kind of faux leather to it. Gives it a whole sort of classical feel. But the actual look of it, Sean, on the board and the first impression, I think is quite negative. Well, I think it's a lovely production. As you said, everything looks like it's going to have that real tactile value to it as a far away visual aid to bring entice you into a game it's not really going to cut the mustard it's not attractive no. yeah like that it's not it's not no. flowers to bees and, and the yeah. other, one other funny little thing although once you explain the rules it does look quite effective because you have to see those strings and see where they go you can see why they've gone for, for not too flashy in the looks they made a strange decision that the four strings and the trojan players pieces are both yellow on black and that was quite confusing to my when you see a game midway through. If you are going to have an abstract game, I think the individual player pieces need to really pop from the board, especially if it's something that you're building roots of things and you've got a sort of almost area majority in there. You're kryptonite. So, yeah. But yeah, and it, this one just doesn't. And it looks like it's going to be even harder for someone like me who doesn't immediately see these things to pick them up. I'm wondering how people, maybe with colour blindness or anything like that, how, how they're going to fare with this game. Some strange design choices in this game, right? Yeah, I'm torn on it. It kind of gives that feel of, oh, it's a serious game here. But it also throws the question at me, and I know you've touched it in the hell. Who am I? What's going on? Why am I playing this game? <laughs> You're a Why great have God you thrown this on more. <laughs> Am I? Is that true? No, anyway, no. get on to gameplay. I, I quite like the idea of the gameplay in itself. I especially think I like playing it, Sean. You've got those pieces, and one way of playing it is to have them all available to you, and the other way is that you flip them and have a limited number available to you, and then you have to make the best of the tiles you flip over. That appeals to me as not a real heavy, pure, abstract player. I like that they've, they've given you that opportunity. Well, I looked at it, and I looked at the choices available, and I just felt like there wasn't that much variety in choices. You've got three or four different types of discs, but if you're going down a certain path and you're trying to win a, a string that has just the sword's value and you're trying to get the power up, your war power up, then you know exactly what you're going to play in that one. I suppose you can break things up and you can switch things around, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of choice in this. It's going to be that thing. of It's a two-player abstract. It's 
winning by just enough, not I'm smashing this 9-0 in this area, because then you're going to be giving away two other strings elsewhere. Without playing, it's hard to tell where that tipping point is. Early reports are quite good, so that might be an act of faith on this if you are an abstract fan. The other thing I think, Sean, you said that they've put in a little bit of variety in there. The fact there's two sides to the board. When you flip it over, there's the loom side. And when you're playing that one, you lay out and the layout is completely different every time. And that really mixes it up. So you can kind of learn on the normal side and go over to the loom side once you've dug in a bit. They've added some depth to the whole package. That's coming back to the way the Osprey do things. They're, they're very thorough in the way they do things, and they've thought ahead, and they've thought maybe this side is going to get a bit boring eventually. Let's really shake it up, and they've completely changed the setup of the game on the other side. So that's definitely a plus point for me. What's your final thoughts on this one? On Agamemnon, I'm very intrigued. I talked about Devon a few episodes ago that possibly starting to look a bit more at two-player abstracts. I'm flip-flopping on this one because I do like a lot of the ideas in it. I just feel like I'm going to have a lack of opportunity to play. So while I'm saying it is a trap, I really hope that one of my gaming friends gets it so that I have an opportunity to play with them and I get to really dig into it and see if it's one for me to buy and keep. But because of limited two-player abstract playing, not this time, I'm afraid. As far as this goes, I'm a big fan of the publisher and I think from what I can see, everything works just fine. There is a game there, there is an interesting game there. It would have had to have been a really interesting and really something that really hooked my mind and piqued my interest for me to call this a treasure. But the fact that I actually had to think about it twice would would suggest it's actually a pretty good game, but I'm going to call it a trap for me. And that is Agamemnon. So moving on, our third game this time around. This is Barcelona, The Rose of Fire from Devier Games for two to four players around a 90 minutes playtime. The design team is Marco Maggi and Francesco Nipitello, who are two of the three designers behind War of the Rings and Battle of Five Armies, also been involved in Age of Conan and Marvel Heroes. The game is set between 1854 and the early 1900s, obviously, in the city of Barcelona. And players are going to compete to expand the city beyond its medieval walls. And as they do that, they're going to be trying to counteract the revolution of the workers who are unhappy with, I, I guess, the gentrification of the area? Sounds kind of familiar. In order to play the game, players are going to play action cards to lay a square city tile onto a grid. Now, the tiles come in one of three colours, the board is split into three areas, and the three colours must be contiguous within each of the three areas. So you're limited somewhat in where you're going to put this tile down. When you put the tile down, you're going to put a building on it, and you're going to choose from one of four classes, upper, middle, lower class, or low cost. Now, why are you going to choose like that? There's going to be an immigration rate which is going to cause some of your workers to strike unless you provide them with housing. So if you build upper and middle class houses, some of your workers are going to go on strike and that could be a problem for you later on in the round. You build a lower or lower cost, you reduce the amount of your workers that go on strike, you give them housing and employment basically in the theme. Confusingly, low cost is called high status in the game. I think that's just a poor choice of translation word. That's part of the confusion reading these rules, which can come up later, I'm sure. But low cost, high status, funny, upper class, low status. Mm. Once a block of four of any buildings is completed, they will be scored at the end of this turn. And the turn will end when all players have played all their cards, which can be four or five cards each time. Now, before we go on, those buildings are going to score one VP each with one kind of bonus VP available. At the end of the phase, 
the striking workers are they're going to try and rebel. And we're going to take soldiers from the castle and they're all going to go in a bag and you're going to pull some out. Extra strikers of yours that want to go on strike but there's no room for them will go on the barricades. Now when you pull from the bag, any more striking workers that are of your colour are also going to go to the barricades. The more soldiers that are pulled out, the more chance there is that there's going to be anarchy in the game, which will flip round the scoring at the end game. We'll come back to that. Now, whoever's got the most strikers on the barricades at this stage is going to get a malice card for something that's going to affect them for the next round. So that's, that's the whole balance between upper class buildings. They're going to score you more points, lower cost buildings. You won't be getting these things coming against you. Now, we're going to look back to those three areas and everyone who's got the building majority in each of the types of buildings is going to get a bonus card for the next round, hence the four or five cards to play. After rounds two, four and five of the five round game, you're going to score the VPs for your buildings. And as I said, the upper class building is going to score you four victory points each and downwards three, two, one for each class. Now, the more strikers there are, the more soldiers there are that go in the bag. The more soldiers that are pulled out, the more that military is going to crack down. And if you have too many soldiers come out in the game, you have a state of anarchy and that reverses all that scoring. And suddenly upper class buildings will score you one victory point and the low cost buildings will score you four victory points. That's one of the big seesaws obviously in the game. In the fifth round, you're not going to get cards for your bonus for having the majority of buildings. You're going to get VPs instead. There's also a mechanism in there where you can get influence and bonus cards for helping out the crown, the colonies and personalities. That's all via different card play when you draw them and play them and do different things. But in the end, all you're doing is putting down these tiles, putting down buildings, balancing the needs of the workers versus the want to score points. And Sean, that is Barcelona. The amount of bad names... I called you when I was reading this rule book. Was it was it higher or lower than the usual number of bad names you're just shouting in your beard about me? Oh, way higher. Yeah, I think every fifth word wasn't a swear word, shall we say. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's yeah. progress for you. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. The rule book just felt like a homage to the growth of Barcelona. Oh, it was almost like this could be used as a teaching aid to see how Barcelona evolved from the 1800s to where it is now. Like, oh my God. And then I watched the video with the, not the designers of the game, but the creator who, who sort of got the designers together and he wanted to make a game about this. And he was coming up with things like, I didn't want someone just to design a game. I wanted them to design the history of Barcelona. I wanted them to see it. I wanted them to come to Barcelona, see it as the locals see it. And it was just, that, it was just. That's funny. passion, Sean. That's passion. It passion. Surely it should be rewarded. It is passion, but I think that overtook the game because the game just all the rules were just hidden in the passion and it was such a hard rule book to get my head around there's even mechanisms i haven't talked about in there there's like a kind of a prestige thing where you mark your prestige on a comic strip which has a particular name because it's particular to barcelona and there's all these touches of flavor exactly what sean's saying they're trying very very hard to not make this any other game this game only works thematically in barcelona but sean thinking about it and I'm going to stick it to you here. What made the rulebook so confusing and what I think is missing from the game is a central mechanism. They've thrown all this stuff at it. They tried to put all the flavor. But what am I actually doing in the game? Because if it's just laying down one square tile with a building on it, that's not enough for all these other things that are swirling around it. it it's flesh without a skeleton. Absolutely. My next point to say was that there's just too much information 
about things that don't actually matter to the game at all. To explain one small mechanism, you're giving me a paragraph. We have all flavour and little sub-mechanisms that actually don't make any sense and it's just the one main mechanism you need to tell me about. You place a building on this go. And the buildings, by the way, they just all look the same on the board to me. Yeah, totally. They so there's supposed to be like one roof for a low-cost one or four for an upper-class one, yeah. two or three in the middle. Can, can you... What? <laughs> what? No. And given you're supposed to see that because there are majorities... That's not good enough for me either. When you look at it, you can't tell what's going on on the board. The idea that you've got to balance these factors of scoring victory points versus the possibility of anarchy, that's great. But the scoring itself, again, the secondary part of the scoring is interesting, but the primary part is really bland and boring. You you score a point every time your building's in a set of four. Upper class score falls, you know, so what? I'm not being driven by what should be the heart of the game. No, you're not. And also, something else that I don't think is driving you forward, Roland, is that you're kind of the bad guy in this. You're kind of somebody who is making money out of everybody else's misery at the time. You're just trying to score, to earn money out of basically chucking people out of their houses, demolishing the slums. I mean, you're not a nice person in this. It's kind of interesting to me that if you want to play the good guy and build low-cost buildings all the time, you're actually preventing anarchy from happening, which flips over and helps you win the game. Again, I feel like theme is not in service of the game. It's the other way around. I'm getting to my point, Ryan, is that I think if you were born and bred in Barcelona and had an interest in the history, then you'd probably buy this just out of just sheer passion. And because of the sheer passion that has been put into this project, once you delve down through the layers and layers of wonderful, rich history of Barcelona, I don't think there's a game here. I don't think there's much of a game anyway. And for that reason, I'm going to say Barcelona, the Rose of Fire is a trap. It sounds like a trap, a Rose of Fire. That does sound like a, yeah. Okay. I want to try it because I want to see how well they've pulled off this, these subtle balances and whether there's more to the influence comic strip thing, the influences of the colonies and that than first appears. But it's it's not one I'm going to buy. So, yeah, for me also, I admire the attempt, but Barcelona and the Rose of Fire is a trap as far as I'm concerned. We've, we've started off quite badly there, right? We've had a few traps there among us. Surely you've chosen an absolute gem to pull us out of the mire. I have chosen one that is cutting edge. Really oh. cutting edge. Um, In 1980, <laughs> whenever it came out. <laughs> 2016 previews. I didn't know what this game was. I click on it, released. I was like, well, there's one from 1981. There must be. What? <laughs> there's not one from 2016. What is it? What's going on? Sean, yeah, yeah. explain yourself to the people. I don't think there is any explaining. I don't think there is. I looked at it. I thought, it's Alinar Moon. They've given it a rejig. It's Black Spy. It's three to six players and it's Abacus Spiel that are giving it that rejig. So what is Black Spy? You have a, a whole deck of cards. And in that deck of cards, you have blue cards, yellow cards, red cards, green cards. Each of those are 1 to 11. And you've also got 
black cards mixed in. And there's 16 black cards because there are six versions of the number seven, which is the spy card. There are other names in there. Some of the black cards are called Informer, Saboteur, Codebreaker, Director. They're all good names. Players are dealt an amount, depending on the number of players in the game. And what they're going to do on a turn, you're going to pass three cards to your left. The leader is going to play a card, and then all players are going to place a card of the colour or the rank of the lead card. The player placing the highest rank card in the colour of the lead card will take all of the cards. The black cards played in the round are worth points. These are the points that you are going to amass. When a player hits 200 points, the scores are totaled, and the lowest is going to win. And that, in a nutshell, is Black Spy. Ronan. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> a 1981 trick-taking game. But sure, why not? A good game is a good game. <laughs> I quite like trick-takers, Sean. My problem is that I always want to play them again and again and again. Mostly because I'm absolutely terrible at them. Who Anyone who played clubs with me yesterday will tell you. I just don't get trick-takers for whatever reason. Whatever the trick taker is, if someone says, yeah, cool, do you want to play this? I go, yeah, great, I'll play it. But I want to play it five times because the first three games, I'm going to be absolutely awful. So what Black Spy has to do for me is stand out above the crowd and go, this is the one trick taker you want to take with you and play again and again and get your head around it. Does it do that, do you think? It's a genre of game that I don't generally get. I'm not likely to pick up myself and I will only play when somebody else wants to play him. So I, I was interested that Alan R. Moon designed it, and it looked all very stylish. But yeah, I don't know that this is the trick taker that is going to make me do exactly what you just said, want to play it again and again and again, and, and really delve into the trick-taking genre. Well, yeah. <laughs> Being no expert on them, I'll say it looks interesting. I do like hate taking where you can stitch people up. I like it in Sticker on, for example. I played it in there. Black Spy, look, if someone has it, sure, great, I'll go for it. In terms of me getting it now, it's about 35 years scared my attention, hasn't yet, so it's a trap, sure. I would actually quite like to give this a go. It actually does look interesting. I think the strategy is possibly in the cards that you pass on to the next player rather than the actual cards that you play so much. So I'd like to investigate that a little bit more. And, Ronan, we, we haven't mentioned... It's got six coasters in it. It has got six coasters. <laughs> That's nice. Nothing to do with the game. <laughs> Nothing to do with the game at all. It's like getting a teddy bear with your life insurance. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Fine. Yeah. If you if you are short of coasters, this could be a game for it's, you. It's got you talking about it. It has got me talking about it. I'm tempted. <laughs> Never um, a man to miss out on being hooked by advertising. <laughs> so yeah, not quite what I hoped it would be. Uh, has it stood the test of time? Only well, hey, only time will tell. But. I am going to say it's a trap for me again. Okay, let's move on. Okay, <laughs> Far <no>. East War. <laughs> four. Is that eight traps of the first four games? Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any treasures? Should we just stop this now? Well, you're about to talk about another type of game that I don't particularly like. <laughs> <Well done. laughs> 
<laughs> a first half clean sweep of traps. Yeah, miserable so and so. Right, this is Far East War 1592. It's from the Imjin Creative, two to four players, 120 minutes playtime. The designer is Alan Wang, and this is his debut. The players are going to play as China slash Korea or as Japan. And they're going to be battling over the Korean Peninsula. Apparently, Japan wanted access to China via the Korean Peninsula, and it was denied, and therefore it all kicked off over there. Uh, Not the first or last time that that particular piece of land has been fought over. In terms of the game, there's a map, and the map is of the peninsula split into different provinces, which have troop limits and supply ratings in there, and the troops are all represented by discs, the troops of either side. game is driven by a six space roundel now there are only three different types of spaces in there and each of those three types of spaces have got two different functions on them and they're split by event spaces and we'll talk about how that works but in terms of the three types of spaces and this is going to drive how you play the game there's the production general space on production all the areas which you control and there can only ever be one side in an area they're going to give you supply points and it just tells you how many supply points you get and you mark that on a tracker easy peasy There are generals in the game. Each general gives you special powers. You can either swap or deploy your generals for supply points when you choose this action. And they're going to go with a set of troops and they'll be on the board. And when they're involved in things that happen on the board, they are going to give you some kind of bonus. And they are definitely the most storied event like what we often call thematic part of the game the the variety and the mix-up and where people's special powers come in from they are somewhat based historically although there's been some license given there as well to put a bit of flavor in there so not 100 percent dry the second space is recruit regroup when you recruit those supply points you got from production you're going to spend to recruit you're going to bring discs into areas where you can and there's an area limit on how many troops you can supply into each area regroup allows you to swap these around your troops in an area so that you set up armies of particular size but the maximum you can ever have is four troops in a stack and two of those four stacks in any one area the last place is move and battle now move costs you one supply point per disc that you're moving per province move as far as you want as long as you can pay for it so things are quite dynamic on the board you never move into an area where the opposition is because that's when you're going to battle when you battle you stick a red little stick down between yourself and the area you're battling into and then as the attacker If you've got surrounding provinces which can reach the target province, you may put up to two little yellow sticks in which show that those provinces are supporting in there and they're going to support you in your attack. So you can see that actually it's quite attacker loaded in this game. Again, adding to that sense of dynamism. When you attack, you roll a d6 for each of your troops in the battle and the faces are a land hit which only counts for land hits obviously a sea hit if it's a sea battle going on it works exactly the same way land or sea the movement and all the rest of it but if it's a sea hit it's going to destroy a troop at sea there's a cannibal which hits on either land or sea there's a face that lets you steal two supply points from your position a general hit because generals can take hits and be eliminated from the game and then there's just a blank every time you go around three spaces on the board now what you do is you can move one or two for free and it's going to cost you points to move further than that but every time you pass every third thing is an event space and an event card's going to come out and that's going to be quite random and stuff's going to happen and that's also going to add to the variety and flavor of the game there's going to be between 18 to 24 events over the course of the game and the most 
land areas controlled at the end of that is going to win the game tiebreaker whoever's killed the most generals of the opposition although if you ever hold 12 spaces at once or there's two particular areas for each side if they hold both those areas that's an insta win condition as well basically that's a two-player game four players exactly the same you just flip all the discs over and one side the china korea side is split into china and korea and the japanese side is split into two as well and you can mostly only take your actions with your own troops but i believe you can support each other in battle sean is coming from an unusual direction a debut designer possibly not a game that's caught everyone's eye yet far east war 1592 what do you think I don't know why I'm thinking that this is the one that has the spectacular looking dice tower. It's a dice castle. Hello. A dice Sorry. tower doesn't quite sum it up, does it? Yeah. It's got that wooden dice castle because there's dice rolling for all the battles that you can get for them. I think it's 28 euro, something like that. You'll have to see it. It's absolutely fantastic. If you've ever seen a high-end dice tower, you'll get an idea what it looks like. I have to say, Sean, that does look spectacular. Eat does and it's what stood out for me when i was doing my essay research initially and then i looked at the board and it looked okay a little bit dull but it just looked like your everyday bog standard war game where you're moving discs around that represent armies and i'm getting really bored of but then i read about it and there's a few things that elevate this ronan the general come on let's go the generals. The generals. That's a Sean touch if ever I've seen one. It really is. They're all different. They can do different things. They lift it. They elevate it. I'm excited. Oh, good. The events. Uh, that was my next point. Again. Go for it. it ele- <laughs> the events change up what the way things are happening, give you a bit of flavour, a bit of theme coming through, and it, again, elevates above the norm. you got the dice rolling. Now, the game is, is quite deterministic. That dice rolling just adds that little bit of excitement to each battle, even if you're, you're pretty sure you're going to win, there's always a chance you're not. Elevates it above the norm. Am I getting my point across? This is a Amerithrash wolf in Wargame Sheep's clothing. People are going to look at this and they're going to walk past the booth, I'm sure, at Spiel and be like, oh, God, another one of those zero luck things. It's got dice rolling. It's got events. It's got special powers. It's got the attacker definitely has the advantage. It's got a very, very simple rule set. This was set in a fantasy world with plastic minis. People would be all over this. It was funded on Kickstarter, but it was only a small hit. It made $26,000. But that's great for a small company because it got the game made. I love the presentation, Sean. I'm wondering, because it's deceptive to what it really is, is that going to harm it in a situation like a convention where first impressions count? I think that's what they're trying to do with the Dice Tower is just get that initial glance. Because when you actually do start looking at it... Hold on, hold it, on. The coasters worked last time and the dice tower worked this time to get you interested. I'm, a, would, I'm an easy market. Come on. Would you like a bottle of snake oil? <laughs> <laughs> when you look at those pieces and you look at that board, it's actually quite attractive. Nice design choices. It looks good on the table. I'm impressed, Ronan. I'm impressed. Oh, what I think I wanted to say was, I think it wears... A Game of Thrones influence there on its sleeve. 
No, you don't have to backstabbing and negotiating so much, but with the supply points, the mustering, the ability to support into an area, although again, this is only for attackers and you're not really going to help each other out too much because there's only two sides. A scaled down Game of Thrones battle game, this feels like to me. I'm talking about the board game, by the way. You're losing me a little bit there. I can't quite oh, well, it. A little bit what? of a stretch. It's a bit of a Pilates reference, <laughs> but I'm going for it. What, another point I'd like to make as well is that, yeah, we're talking about Mary Thrash sort of element to it, and it is very thematic, and there's all this stuff happening. But also, when you come, when you put it back and have a look at it again, there is those Euro elements with the economy of the supply points. You have got the area control, and you have got to set yourself up nicely for attacks. I think there's a, there's a little bit of both in there. Yeah, you might get concerned that someone gets on a roll and that they're going to steamroller through the game. But it looks like C movement and movement is easy enough that you're going to be able to attack their underbelly. They're not going to be able to both pay the supply points to roll across the board and also have enough supply points to defend everything they've taken. So while there's Euro elements there, hopefully not to bog it down, Sean. I'd like to hear you this excited, though. Give us your final thoughts on Far East War. I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, I think I've said it all right. I think it is a deceptively thematic war game that still stays true to the history. There's a very rich history about this battle. Yeah, the generals might... Still famous generals from history. Maybe not from Japan or Korea. They are famous generals from history. And it's a sneaky little treasure for me, Ronan. Let me tell you, mate. This is based on a seven-year war, but it took about ten minutes to win me over. And I love this idea of this game. This is coming back to Essen for me. I'm going to stick this down as a treasure. That's Far East War 1592. Lovely. So, for the last game of this half of the show, it's all about getting your dream home, Ronan. Oh, my dream home's wherever you are, Sean. So that'll be a, a pub or a gutter. <laughs> and trying to drag you out of it. <laughs> it is Dream Home. It's from Asmodee, designed by Clemens Kalicki, and it's two to four players. It is all about players trying to build their dream home room by room. Each round, you've got to choose from a room and a resource, which are twinned, and the rooms are placed in your house with the rulings that you must have a room underneath or a structure underneath to build on the upper floors. Resources will add items two of the rooms to give you extra points and some rooms can score extra if they are twinned together Uh, that's pretty much it ronan dream home my initial impression here was cutesy boring theme there was a memory element and it wasn't just not for me I'm doing my Essen research. Obviously, we've looked at a lot of games. We're getting to the end of it now. I'm trying to pull together some sort of a list. I looked at it going, oh, what has he got me looking at? (laughs) I had a paradigm shift, Sean. You did? I realised I was judging it as a world-weary gamer looking at number 90-something in the list of games that I'd looked at. And I was like, cutesy. What's wrong with cutesy? There's nothing wrong with cutesy. And the theme, because we're kind of both looking to move home in the, in the future, kind of thinking along that theme is, oh, that'd be interesting. And plus, 
You know what inspired me to look at this, Roland? What inspired you, Sean? It was the publisher. The best treehouse ever. Oh, totes! That was in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've written it down. <laughs> that's what. That's what. I looked at this one. You know what? If this is half as good as that, then I'll give it's it. It's like best treehouse ever grew up and moved into an actual home because <laughs> there's a bit more um, to it. There's a little bit more to it, but there's not much in the box from what I can see. Yeah, but that's okay because where I started looking at it was it's it's clearly a game for families. Okay, not young kids, but families. And then the theme is so familiar to them that it's going to make sense. Also, all the information in the game is open, so it's all going to make sense. It's actually very clever use of a theme as far as I'm concerned. Because you go like, well, a, you know, a bedroom's got to be next to a bedroom, living room's got to be living room. You can't build a room on top of where there is no yeah, room. Which is cool. But the thing I liked about the best treehouse ever was the variety and what you could have. It was just such a wild variety and there were so many cards and you're never going to see the same card twice in in the way that they come out and the sequence that they come out. And then I looked at this and I thought, how are they going to get all that variety in? And from what I can see, they didn't. No. You've got a set amount of rooms. It's something like eight or something. You're going to build eight rooms. It just doesn't feel enough for me. It just doesn't feel like I'm going to get that much variety. There doesn't seem to be that many cards in the box. But they've simplified that element and added in the special powers Mm. and the tools and the helpers and stuff like that, which will help you in different ways. So they've reduced there, but but added a lot more to the game. Yeah, yeah. I've got another worry. Oh, go on. How much player interaction is in here? Now, I'm not... type of person that usually likes a lot of messing around with your stuff as we've often said i like to put my head down build me a little tableau get everyone to leave me alone but i just in this one i was looking thinking i'd really want ways to mess with each other rather than just taking the card that you want well what more do you want in a drafting game you can't mess with each other in best treat as ever well yeah you're gonna look at it and go you really need that card is it worth me taking that not and i love the fact that the rooms are married to the special powers so you're making a decision on two things. But again, it's all open. So for kids, they can look at it and go, here are your clear choices. In a drafting system like Best Treehouse Ever, yeah, the kid will look at it and go, I really want that's cool. But they're not understanding the full flow of, look, if you've seen lots of blue cards, you know there's lots of blue cards around the table, so they're going to go in everyone. So that affects your decision. Whereas here, they can look at them all and see, oh, if I take a bathroom... No one else is going to get a bathroom because it's the only one there in this round anyway. And that openness, I think, makes it easier for them to make good strategic decisions. Now, these are not deep decisions, mate. These are just for kids to begin to plan a bit more forwardly and to be a bit more aware of what other people are doing. I'm quite surprised that you've sort of taken this stance on your own. I thought that you'd be smacking it around the back of the head by now, but... Would you like to give us your final thoughts? It's not farming in Greece. It's not pirates. It's not Vikings. There's not a Cthulhu in sight. There you go. That's a big step up for me. I had that shift in my head. It's not a game I would get for myself or a game to get for my playgroup. But I think it is a game that I would happily play with my family. I think you need to realise that 
where Dream Home has its place, and especially it's going to be very at home at Spiel, which has got such a huge family orientation, the big kids area in the Galleria with all the bouncy castles and the trampolines and the bungees and stuff they can play with, the fact that families go there, there's so many kids games, publishers there. I think Dream Home fits right in with this fair, and Sean, I'm going to call it a treasure for what it is. I want, really wanted to like this one. I really wanted it to be along the lines of Best of Trees House ever. And maybe because of my love for that game and how much surprised I was by that game. Maybe I'm judging this unfairly. But for me, there's not quite enough variety in there. I'm hoping to be proved wrong. This is one of those ones that I'm definitely going to try. But for now, it's a trap. That's Dream Home. You need that paradigm shift, brother. You need that switcheroo. <laughs> into the home straight soon we'll be playing these games and this will all just be a dream what i'm gonna take you to the stars oh take me up there Ronan. <laughs> take you up <laughs> take me up there <laughs> okay i'm not sure i've got the equipment kepler 3042 <laughs> from placentia games for two to four players advertised playing time of 90 minutes this is from debut designer simone serucha sola this is played out on a hexagonal board, which represents the stars. It's split into three zones, and on that board, you're going to have celestial bodies, which are laid out randomly, semi-randomly, and those are tiles. You are in a spaceship, which starts kind of near the middle of the board at Sol, at our own sun. During the course of the game, you're going to be having a tech tree. You're going to look to advance in five different areas. You're going to start with a couple advanced already. You're going to get an individual objective card to follow through during the game. And the game is all driven by your management of resources, which are matter, antimatter, and energy. And all those resources, before we get into what you do in the game, are going to be in one of three states. They're either going to be on a planet, ready to be spent, earth to start with because that's the only planet you've discovered they're going to be spent and in a place on your board or it's possible that you burn them and you're no longer going to get to use them and it's all about how you manage the shifting of the cubes of the resources between those three states is what's going to drive all of your decisions in the game each turn progress guard is going to get flipped over it's going to have a mini objective on there and we're going to put some medals on there during the course of the round which people can win you're then going to get to do your main action. And the main actions you can do are build another ship. You start with one, you can have a maximum of three. You can develop one of your techs in these five different areas, which can give you access to different things in the game. So, for example, one of the first things you can do is colonize. But if your tech level isn't high enough, you can only colonize certain types of planets. Equally, when you find a planet, if you do colonize it and you pay a ship to do so, you can terraform it to flip over the tile, make it more useful, make it worth more points to you, but you're going to have to have the tech to do that too. You're going to be able to produce resources, again, at energy matter or antimatter. As well as doing those basic things, you're going to be able to take bonus actions in an emergency by burning your resources. They go to the burnt space, you're not going to be able to use them again, but all of your actions require resources to be spent from one planet. You're also going to be 
able to send out your long-range scanners and you'll be able to flip tiles over. So you're not just going in blind. And in fact, if anyone flips over tiles, everyone gets to share that knowledge. At the end of the round, when everyone's done their actions, we're going to go back to the progress card. And there are going to be medals put on there for whoever's done the best in tech advancement and also who's done the most colonization and they're going to get those bonus points at the end of the game there are 16 rounds at the end of that you're going to score resources you've got left over you're going to score got one of each of the five different types of planets or three of one type of planets you can target where you settle from that if you've got technologies at their maximum they're going to score you some points those medals i talked about will score you a few points planets will score depending upon how far away they are from the sun and you're going to score for planets you've terraformed and also if you've completed your individual objective card all in only 16 rounds. So you're going to have to specialize in some of that. Now, that's going to sound quite confusing and overwhelming because I think Kepler 3042 tries to fit quite a lot into a relatively short playtime and quite a tight little rule set. Sean, you've got lots to do. Yes, Ronan, you do. Now, I was quite excited when I saw this. The theming appeals to me. The tech tree had me excited. And although I didn't particularly like the look of it, it looks very basic, I was quite excited. And then I realised that I already have this game and it's called Eclipse. No. No, you don't. You really, really don't. Eclipse is about building up a fleet and conflict and conquering and it's much more expansive this is about the early exploration of our galaxy you're exploring you've got the tech tree you're, you're getting resources completely different focus different time scale in terms of playing different sorts of objectives this is small very small you're sending out a ship to maybe colonize one planet little 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 yeah, one of the comments I've got here is it just seems a lot of faff. A lot of, I don't know what, what reward there is in this game. It's just moving stuff from one place to another and trying to get a tech tree up. I just don't see... Why am I doing any of this? It seems very, very Euro mechanism-y. Let me tell you about this binary system we have, which is very imperfect and has a huge grey area in the middle for how we like to categorise games thematic and euro this is a game in which it is hard to get things done you do not have enough time to do everything you're gonna have to specialize you're gonna have to decide when to burn those resources you can sometimes get them back by the way you're gonna have to decide look that person's heading that i'm never gonna get there i'm gonna have to go down this route you have to look at the discoveries as they happen and go right this is my plan and i need to be laser sharp on this plan to do well it's tight Eclipse is wide open, fighty, things can happen. This is date. Yeah, but Eclipse says you care about what you're doing. You might as well take all the theme off this. Yeah, maybe I've got to the point where the rules blindness was kicking in, but... It's early space exploration. There's actual discoveries in there. You're actually going to prioritise places you want to go. what are you discovering? You, you, the planets have no real identity. There's a different They do, because you get bonuses for one of each. Alien ones give you much better powers, but you have to be good enough to be able to colonise them. There's mines, which you're going to go to fly to, 
which is the only way to generate new resources back for yourself because most of your resources just go round and round in circles. If you go to the faraway planets, they're going to score you more points than the nearer planets. You need to decide which planets to land on first because otherwise you're not going to have a base to move from. It's all there, man. you just got to go with it. It's not wild stories. It's not special powers. It's not loads of plastic bits. It's tight, focused actions. Tight, focused, boring actions. Man, you, you've really know. kept your cards close to your chest on this one. Go on. Sum up on Kepler 3042. <laughs> trap, 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 de trap, trap. I like the theming. I want to explore and see whether it pulls off this difficult decision, whether you're going to have different routes to go down, especially a tight game like this, whether you can get better at it as you play it and discover more and there's depth to it. I'm going to go treasure on Kepler 3042. Okay, I think I'm going to get all of that thrown back in my face with the... uh... Bound, bound, bound and rebound, and it's bound, bound, (laughs) bound and rebound. One of Ronan Ronan's favourite, and he threw it in there just to let me know he was preparing earlier. We call that foreshadowing, by the way. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Good old Greek economy game. It's Roads from the Games Master BV, designed by Pieta Boots. So, the game is set in 292 BC Greece. Players are farmers producing olives, grapes, grain and goat's milk and trying to get gold. They're trying to bring it to Rhodes in order to earn victory points. During a round, players are going to have two actions. You take one at a time and they are chosen from production, where you're going to produce goods on your fields by using the available production tiles. Other players with the same produce may also gain you have the farm where you use your personal farm to score points and money uh, use available resources sail a fully loaded ship which is going to in turn push the other ships in the harbour towards the shore ships that hit the land empty their goods into either the player warehouse if it's your ship or into the general supply if it's a non-player stroke egyptian ship you're also going to score money for each goods that you sail on your ships You've got a harbour action where you're going to buy goods and you're going to complete assignments. Assignments are completed by providing goods from your warehouse and or farm. And you can get some money and points for that. The market, you're going to sell goods for money. The temple, you're going to buy victory points. And the town hall, you're going to buy more personal tiles from your farm. What do they do? Well, you've got development and farmland. Farmland just adds to your farm and development tiles are going to give you in-game bonus to assist you on your way. Ronan, it's a tried and tested theme. Roads. One day, me and you can sit down at a table and start trying to design a game. And I'm going to set us a challenge, okay? Go on, I'm waiting. I'm going to ask you to design a game with a more generic name than Roads. Uh, Corsica. A name of a European place. Very good. I'm going to ask you to come up with a more generic theme than farming in Greece. Farming in Italy. I'm going to ask you to come up with a game that looks more generic for its category than this game looks. I can tell you what the game does, and people out there could draw us the game board. Yeah. I'm going to say, give me the first ideas that come in your mind when I say design a Euro game about farming in Greece, and you will list all of these mechanisms in the first three minutes. Go on. 
So, why? Why does it need to exist? I just I couldn't care less about this game. It's done nothing wrong, but it's also done nothing. Simple action selection, farming, trading, boring, boring. boring. I think it brings a lot. I think it brings a lot together. You've got the tableau building. You've got the economy. You've got the pickup and delivery. I think tableau nice building adding a couple of tiles that give you one cube. And Sean, this has all been done before. I think there's a couple of the, the pushing the ships along in into the harbour is interesting. I think I'm hankering for a return to one of these. I play a lot of thematic games. And I want a good old fashioned, dry, themeless, economic Euro. Good. That's what I'm hankering. Go and for. play one of the classics. Because the ones that have survived are the ones that did it best and they've all got a unique hook to them. Go and play Puerto Rico. This has nothing unique. Any product needs a USP. Why are you different? Why am I choosing to spend my money on you? Rhodes has nothing. Why does it have to be different? Why can't it just blend some of the same old mechanisms together in a slightly different way? Because it's not different. It's different. The, the pushing of the ships along and blending that together with the economy, and blending that together with the pickup and delivery, and blending it together with the tableau building. Yeah, there's probably something out there that does does all of them. I can't think of it. I just, this is going to be forgotten in two minutes. It's a trap. You tell, you tell me all you like, that you like its charming simplicity or whatever. It's nothing. I think you're being a bit harsh. I am going to say that this is a treasure. I am actually quite looking forward to playing it i'm hankering for an old-fashioned style euro games and i'm going to give it a go that's Rhodes. joe maybe there's something wrong with your chromosomes maybe there is maybe they're not aggressive enough when it comes <laughs> to you you got half the same grandparents as i have so it wouldn't be a good sign and the next game is chromosome from cube factory of ideas two to four players 45 minutes playtime a debut design from marcin danish you are playing as an alien microbe which has been unleashed by some sort of a mishap in an antarctic lab you landed from a meteor they were studying you there's up to four different types of you and you are now going to fight to be the one to survive in this lab and colonize the earth somehow in effect you are four asymmetric powers you're going to be playing over 12 rounds and the game is going to be played on a hex board which is going to be laid out pre-game with either 15 or 19 tiles in there, depending upon player count. You're going to have on your own personal board up to eight genes, and these genes are discs which you flip over to power actions. You are going to lose if you're eliminated, or if your radiation level ever goes above seven. You've also got something to keep track of called Fortune, which is basically going to help you to do little bonus actions when you most need them during the game. On each turn, there's going to be an event, whatever that may be, then you may move one group off your chromosomes. They're represented by discs on the board. And then you're going to be able to take actions. Each action costs you either to activate the relevant genes, which again are the discs on the board, which you flip over, or possibly also and or to flip population discs. And each population disc that you have can only be flipped on the board once per turn. So what can you do? You can grow the groups of microbes you have on the board to grow your presence. 
So as well as growing groups, mutations and gaining genes, you can also do spark, which is the basic attack. You can do this to spend fighting genes and you get to roll d4s for your presence and the amount of fighting genes you spend. There's impulse in which you can use telepathy genes on your board to re-energize your tokens so that you can take more actions. There are also special actions available, four of them, for each of the different types of microbes. So whichever one you're playing is going to give you some sort of emphasis in what you're best at. Now there are radiation rooms and if your microbes are around them, your radiation level can go up during the game. Like those above seven, you'll be dead, so you have to be aware of that. The game ends either after a set number of rounds or when a player is eliminated. You're going to get VPs for all your microbes on the board, any fortune you have left over, and whenever you kill another player's microbe, you get it as a trophy and that scores you points. Your radiation level is going to be negative points for you, so either last microbe standing or most points is going to win the game. Sean, no one else knows it took three takes to do that rules explanation. I'm not sure how many of them know the pain that that is that rule book. Oh my goodness. It's not just hard to read because of the way the rules are set up and laid out it's hard to actually read because <laughs> it's, it's done in a stylized computery style text and when you throw in that the actual content isn't brilliantly formatted then it is a difficult game to get your head around lots of mentions of chromosomes and groups and tough old read yeah maybe i'll put out those outtakes one day so people can feel my pain <laughs> but at least it has an interesting theme i think it's a slightly stretched theme <laughs> microbes fighting in this lab i mean yeah. I, I don't know how you'd ever notice three microbes in a lab in a room well. but at least they've gone for something different yeah, going back to what you've been saying, they've, they've changed it up. They've tried something different, and fair play to them for that. Also, Ronan, I love the look of the game. I think it looks really, really nice. I think the, the colours of the microbes really stand out, especially when they're charged. Tiles look really polished. It looks like a very polished game. Especially for, I, I think it's Cube Factory Ideas' first game. I could be wrong there, but they're not a big publisher. I think, yeah, they've done a good job. I'm not quite as taken as you are with the look, but I think they've done very well. There's no obvious mistakes in there, and it looks different to other games. Uh, in terms of thematic use of actions in the game, Sean, for example, it's easier to spread via growing your microbes and get more on the board than by movement, which kind of makes sense if you're thinking about microbes on a small scale not sure about the big scale but then they've got other touches like you have telepathy genes which somehow control radiation again it's a bit of a crowbar in so the looks help you with the theme some things help with the theme and other things don't yeah yeah it's kind of like a fantasy microbe chromosome <laughs> Gene game. <laughs> Another one of those old chestnuts. Another one of those. God. I think there are genuine choices here. I think just by choosing your genes carefully can tailor how you play this game and, and what you're good at, what you're bad at. And you do have to make choices within that framework. Absolutely. And I think it's good that it lets other people see 
where you may be going with your genes. In that, you know, I'm collecting a load of attack genes. Guess what's going to happen, guys? But it's not just basically about attacking because it could have been just move some discs around the board, have an attack here and there, someone wins in the end. They have got the other special powers in there. And I feel like there's space to learn this game and try those different tactics and explore what's going on and see how the different factions marry up against each other as well. That's something that you, as sort of seasoned gamers now, that we're looking for, just those avenues to explore. Not you're not just going to get five games of this and they say, you know what, I've seen it all now. Let's move on. Let's give give us a few choices to explore. Give us those avenues. But having said that, I do think it is quite an aggressive game. Yeah, people have to know that going in, eyes open. There's no likey-likey's cooperative going on around here. It's in your face. It's a true battle. But, Sean, my major concern about it is that people start equidistant from each other, and especially at lower player counts. Would it start quickly enough, or is it going to be a case of a build, a build, and then towards the end is when actually the game gets decided? I kind of feel like with a two-player game, you're not going to see a lot of different strategy which is what sort of appeals to me in the three and four player game. You're going to start with the different chromosomes and they do have slightly different powers. I think with the two player, you're almost kind of got your two options. You can either dance around quickly and get as many out as you can or just smash into each other and see who wins. So I think definitely one for the higher play counts. I like you to play to your strength, so I do like to see you dancing around quickly. Well, there we go. Light on your feet. <laughs> Do you want to sum up your thoughts on Chromosome for us? Okay, Ren, I, I think it's a unique theme. I do like the look of the game. I do think you can have options in this. It was one that my wife, Natalie, actually picked out of the crowd initially, so I had my eye on it anyway, and for me, it's a treasure. I can only echo what Sean's just said. There's enough in there, enough choices, and it's a unique enough game that I think it's a treasure for me as well too, and that is Chromosome. Lovely, lovely. We're off to prison, Ronan. Again? Again. <laughs> this is The Daedalus Sentence by Eagle Griffin Games, designed by Tom Blaze, Ian Van Gemmeren, and Bart Watershoot. It's for one to four players, and the year is 2083, and you find yourself in a cell. This cell is in the Hive Space Prison, and you must escape while avoiding your captors, who are the Loctai, a nasty alien race. The game features a rotating board with four revolving rings. Players have to make their way to an escape pod on the outer ring and avoid capture. Each round you're going to have a Theseus phase. The Theseus board is a board that will be populated with cards depicting the colours of the rings and how they're going to rotate and the aliens that are going to appear. This is going to show players ahead of each round what aliens and are going to appear and where they're going to appear and what rings are going to rotate. Then you're going to have the player phase and this is where you have a range of general actions for the players to do. They have five actions each and they can move, they can discover rooms because they're hidden at first. You can pass cards amongst each other, and what are cards used for? Well, they are used to for various things, to open locks, to change the lineup on the Theseus board, to take out the guards. One of the actions you can do, eliminate the guards. 
You've also got some location-specific actions. Lastly, you're going to have the Theseus phase, and this is where the rings are going to rotate, and the guards are going to be placed, and they're going to move. Players win if you all get to the escape pod. Players lose if you're all captured, or one player is captured twice. That's the Daedalus sentence. Ronan, how are you feeling about it? What links these three pieces of work, Sean? You ready? Go. The Harry Potter series from Book 5 onwards. Interesting. You have to expand on that. A Song of Ice and Fire from Book 4 onwards. You're going to have to expand on that. And this game. Um, Is the word Daedalus in all of them? No, they all needed an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we talked about Daedalus Sentence before. I've had my eye on it for a long time. It's got so many good ideas in it. When you sit down to read the rule book, I found it really, really off-putting because there's too many fiddly and farty bits going on. We're talking about skeletons of games. This one has got that good skeleton. There's a great idea here. I like the theme of it. I like having like, escaped from this prison, laboratory, whatever you want to call it, the turning, don't exactly know what's going on around you, the sense of exploration, but... There's so many little doinks and deeks and like, I feel like I'm bumping my head on things as I'm going through trying to learn this game, Sean. I think you're absolutely right. I read the rule book. I then gave up on the rule book and I watched <laughs> the playthrough with the creators. With the bits and of I paper. Learned, with the bits of paper. Mm. And there's, a, there's, a, there's another playthrough on BGG as well, which is a whole hour-long playthrough, which I looked at some of. But, yeah, you learn so much more about the game and how it works. And they're also really sort of personable guys as well, so it's easy to watch them. That's how I learned the game. The rule book is not the best at all. But not just the rule book, but I'm, I'm taking it further into the gameplay as well. Did you feel like there was any stuttering in the gameplay? Did it flow? Was it smooth? Was it easy to consider when making your decisions in, in this co-op game? Or were there little things that you think, oh, we forgot that exception, or oh, we forgot that little thing happens. Oh, crikey, yeah, that happens in this particular circumstance. Was there any of those coming up during well, the playthroughs? The only time that happened was in it when they entered a specific room, I like know the hatchery or somewhere like that, which had specific rules. But I really enjoyed that because that it added flavour, and it wasn't just a red room and a green room. There was a control panel. There was a, a way to unlock the doors to get onto the next level, and you had to be in a certain room to do that. And it gives you the code, and then you've got to try and match the code. I found it all really familiar and really interesting in, rather than sort of painstaking or annoying. There's two things there I want to talk to you about. Firstly, I'm going to go to the doors. The doors are like the doors in Dark, Darker, Darkest. I reckon you absolutely love that. <laughs> you reckon I love that? Yes, you're right. I, <laughs> I like you a little you love in-game a puzzle. I love a code. I like a little in-game puzzle. It's one of the things we talked about in Mansions of Madness. Those are in-game puzzles. I love them. I love them. A game within a game. Yeah. Happy days. <laughs> you would. Thematically, I said I love the idea of the theme. A tiny bit spotty. Like, when one of your dudes gets captured, every turn you get another Minotaur guard come out. But when he gets away, those extra Minotaur guards stop coming out. So hold on a second. 
You've locked him up, so you've put extra guards out. He's escaped, so you don't send more guards out. They've looked at the actual gameplay value, and they've not come up with a clever way of... (laughs) Well, there's an emphasis on don't abandon him for too long. The longer you leave them in there. So it's that thing of you're trying to always move outwards, but if someone's captured, you've got to get back inwards and get them out again, because the penalty for them being in that cell has to be quite harsh. It's got the toy factor, though, those rotating rings. It's one of those eye-catching games that people go, oh, what's that? Look, why are you, why are you twisting that around there? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that's obviously what the, the hook. But- as well as the toy factor to that, Sean, we both know that we're both simple enough for the fact that it twists and moves unusually is going to absolutely screw with our planning. Of course it is. <laughs> What? <laughs> We're going to forget that it twists. Of course we are. Like, hang on, what, what phase of the game? Oh, hang on, it's the it's the, uh, it's the Theseus phase. Hang on. Oh, but I was going to go in that room and drown it. We are definitely going to forget it twists. There's no <laughs> doubt. Cooperative game designers must love idiots like us that just forget stuff. One, one of my issues with the game... There doesn't seem to be a lot of variety in the guards, and you've just got the two. You've got the Loctite scientists or whatever they are, and you've got the Minotaurs. I would like to have seen a bit more variety, like maybe like a big boss that comes out every now and again, like like the Abomination in Zombicide, and you're like, oh no, if the Abomination comes out now, what are we going to do? Just, just a bit of tension that something big might come out. I feel like if the game's a success, I'd expect to see those in the expansion. But I also feel like in this game in particular, it'll be an absolute balancing nightmare for the game as a puzzle. While from a wish fulfillment point of view, I understand you. In terms of the game, I actually kind of go, well, I can see where they're coming from here. And maybe that will come later down the line. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's probably why I'm not a game designer. <laughs> that's the thing, like, I want this in there. I want that in there. I want lots of that. I want none of that. I want four of them. Make it happen. Here's my big issue with it, okay? Go on. The perfect planning in that you can see what's coming up. You know how many are coming. You know how the board's going to move. There's your alpha player or your, this is the right move for this turn. Now. They kind of messed up. No, they didn't kind of. They definitely messed up the layout of the rule book. There's all kinds of flavor text mixed in. There's also these difficulty enhancers. They say at the beginning, there's like seven difficulty enhancers, which you can make the game more challenging or mix it up. And they're all listed at the end. And then throughout the rules, they keep referring to them. And it breaks it all up and makes the rule book a mess. But most importantly, they're absolutely vital to gameplay for me. I'm not sure I would even want to play it once without at least that first difficulty enhancer in play. So you can predict what's coming out on that row of four columns of cards. The very first difficulty enhancer mixes that up. You know one of those columns is coming out. You don't know which one it is. Immediately when I read that, there you go. That's the game. Well, I actually think the the imperfection in in the knowledge comes earlier. So you know something's going to come out. You know where you are at the moment. You are absolutely screwed. 
you know what you have to do to get out, but how do you get out of it? You possibly have to manipulate that Theseus board. I think that's where the imperfect information comes out, is right at the beginning, and then you've basically got to get yourself in a position where it's not going to hinder you. I, I agree with you. That's think- not it. You're not describing imperfect information. Imperfect information is you don't know what's going to happen next. But you don't know what's going to happen before that comes out. Then all of a sudden, you've got to react to that information once it comes out. But but my problem with that is, as soon as that's out, there is a perfect plan. It exists, but can you do it? Can mm. you manipulate it? Can you get to a certain area? Can you unlock the room? Have you got enough time to unlock the room? Some of your actions are to get cards. Maybe you have to... Uh, listen, we could talk about that all night and we could st- we'll still disagree. I, I agree with you to a point that, yeah, I think it does make it more interesting. I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't play it without any of those in there. I think I'd have a couple of games playing it and enjoy it, but then I would want to, to move on and start putting those difficulty factors in. Right. For sure. We're both sounding pretty positive here. I've had my eye on this one for months, and the rulebook did its best to put me off. But nevertheless, I have come through that issue, and for me, the Daedalus sentence is a treasure. Yeah, I tried to have a look, little look at this one at the UK Games Expo. Never quite got around to it. I've had a really close look at in the build-up to Essen, and I'm very excited. It looks great on the table. It seems to be very cooperative. It all sounds thematic, and it is a definite treasure. That's the Daedalus sentence. Okay, into our penultimate game with these previews. This is Meduris. This is coming from Hubba, part of their move to more grown-up games. Two to four players, 75-minute playtime. There's co-designers, Stefan Dora, who designed For Sale, Medina, Pergamon, with his co-designer here, Ralph Zalinda, who's also designed Finca, Animals on Board, Milestones. Thematically, players are building up a Celtic settlement by building huts, collecting resources to do so, creating temples, and very importantly, appeasing the gods when the local druid comes to visit the huts they have built. Depending on player count, players will have two or three workers. These will be placed in one of four fields to start with and throughout the game. You're able to stack workers up to three high. On each round, the current player rolls a dice. The dice is either going to trigger one of the fields and everyone in that who has a worker in that field is going to receive one resource per worker. So there are four resources in the game, copper, stone, etc. Or everyone's going to get to take one resource off their choice or everyone's just going to lose a resource off their choice. And that's the first thing from rolling the dice. Then the current player has got three options. They either move one of their workers amongst the fields and that's going to trigger the field they move to. Now, wherever their worker is in a stack makes no difference. They simply take it out and add it to the top of any other stack. The stack, like I say, can be a maximum of three workers high. And then wherever your worker is in height, that's how many resources they're going to claim from that field. So one, two or three if you manage to get it on top. The second thing you could do instead of that is to build a hut. Huts are going to cost two particular materials. They're built in a circle around the board. Each space shows you what materials you need to pay. There might be a little bonus associated with that space. They are put down randomly at the beginning of the game. 
Now, the two different materials is shown. If it's the first hut in a group, there are no other huts next to it. It just costs those two materials. However, if it's part of a group, it is one of each of those types of materials per hut in the group. Also, when you build a hut, it will be one of nine different areas associated with runestones, and you get to take the runestone either from the supply, or if someone else has it, you take it from them. The last thing you do is build a temple, it costs two materials, they go in the same circle as the huts and they break up these settlements, these groups I've been discussing. Also when you build a temple, you have to move the druid. The druid, after the fourth temple is built, is going to make their way onto the board and they're going to start circling around the same circle that the huts and the temples are built in. When they move, they visit the first settlement they come to and every hut in there, the player owns it, gets the chance to pay resources. They pay one of the two resources which it originally cost to build the hut, they're going to score a point. If they pay both of those resources, they're going to score points equal to the number of huts in their settlement. So building huts in a large settlement costs a lot of money, but it also gets you more points when the druid comes to visit. If you choose not to pay any resources or you can't, you're going to lose one point. The druid will visit every hut in a settlement and then stop when he gets to a blank space or a temple. Once the druid has made one complete circuit of the board, there's going to be an interim scoring, which is very easy, just one victory point per runestone you currently hold. The game is going to finish when someone has built both their temples and then 8 or 12 huts, depending upon player count. Everyone gets one last turn, then from where the druid is, they're going to do a complete circuit visiting every hut in the game, and you all get a chance to score more points. At the end of the game, every temple built by a player gets VPs equal to the size of both adjacent settlements, and there's pyramid scoring for runestones you have at that time. So first having one is one, two is three, three is six, etc. And onwards. Sean, Habba are the bomb. This is how to present a game. This is how to write a rule book. No matter how we get on to what we think about the gameplay, Habba know how to do this well. Oh, absolutely. They've, they've just laid it out as simply as they would lay out one of their, their four-year-old games. You start with this, then you're going to do this, this, and this, and this is the order you're going to do it, and this is why you're going to do it, and this is the points you're going to get for doing it. It's like slipping into a warm bath. <laughs> right. Firstly, Ronan. Yes. I have no idea why those dice are even in the game. Mm. it's a very strange one it almost feels like because i think the worker placement mechanism and how you gather resources from that just on its own is really interesting and more than enough to carry the resource gathering section of the game and then they just thrown in that dice roll at the beginning and it just almost felt like they bought a load of dice they're like oh what should we use those in? Oh, we'll stick them at the beginning of that. I, I'm going to assign a different motivation to them. Go I on, think it's on. from their child game origins and background. What having the dice in is does two things. It gives you a chance to get a resource you may not otherwise have access to. So it loosens up the game a little bit for you. Second thing is it means everyone is involved on every turn. And that's an important thing in children's game design. And I think maybe they might have brought that through because I'm thinking back to Karuba. That was certainly a heart of Karuba. Is everyone's involved all the time. In this dice roll, what do I get? What do I get? I take my one action, dice roll. Everyone's involved. I get my one action, dice roll. Everyone's involved. And it keeps the table 
ticking over and keeps children involved in the game. Yeah, yeah. As, as a Euro game mechanism, right? As a Euro, yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's rubbish. As a family game mechanism, I think it's great. I think the the people are involved anyway, just by that worker placement mechanism, because just the way they are stacked, that's how many people are going to get. So everyone's going to get something and everyone's going to be interested because of where you stack your player and trying to get to the top of the stack where you're going to get more. And that is quite inclusive, that mechanism already. Oh, I'm feeling you. I'm just trying to assign why they did it. I'm not really supporting it. I don't think it's a great mechanism, but... That's why I would say they did it. Yeah, no, fair enough. I, fair I do enough. love that meeples in the fields thing where you can break them up and you by taking one away, yeah. you're actually stitching up the other players left in there and you hop on top of something and suddenly you're getting three. Such a clever little idea. Yeah, and, and the physical actually act of stacking them on top of each yeah, other. Because they stack and cool. they hold each other up and all that. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> It's pretty cool. Now we move on to the sort of the other main area of the game, which is the building placement. And that has a slightly different twist to it. In the, it's more than just building areas of, of structures. You're going to have to think about where you're building them. The latter ones are going to cost much more. It feels like you're really going to have to think about that. Definitely. Do you try and hang on and just get as many resources as you can and then go for those big huts in the big areas where the druid comes around and you can score loads of points and while someone's doing that do I then go oh cool I see what you're doing I'm going to build as many cheap ones as I can and rush the end of this game so the druid doesn't even get to your hut I love it a lovely simple little balance that just and so easy to see as well and part of the design yeah. of the game that you look you go that settlement is three big that's too big completely yeah, clear yeah and I love that the bonus tokens are down there to kind of incentivize different spaces. There's like mm. a druid token. If that's under your hut, when the druid comes round, you can throw that away. And it's as if you've paid the two resources. So you can just score points for nothing. You'll want to race to grab those. The druid moving in. So if you have got a load of buildings in the settlement, after paying for them, are you going to have enough resources to be able to influence the druid because every time you can't pay a resource you're going to lose points yep so again it's that balance you can't just go and swamp an area with huts yeah because and also it's great because temples are so cheap to build if they're next to a big settlement they score loads of points so there's that real as it gets bigger and more expensive there's the real temptation just bookend it with temples and go great i'll take points out of this instead yeah both of the main sections of this, and there are just the two main sections, it keeps it from being overwhelming. Because I think if you added maybe another section with another interesting mechanism, the market they're trying to go for, it might just get a little bit overwhelming. You would lose the younger audience. You would lose the family audience. I think they've just hit it just right. You've got two very interesting mechanisms that both provide you with a lot of thought and choice that just isn't overwhelming either i think they just tickled the right area and for that reason ronan it's a definite treasure for me how about all the way doing well they're doing well i'm with you all the way this could be the perfect introductory euro game it's got real decisions without too many options the heart of a good euro boom 100 percent treasure knocked out of the park Okay, Ronan, we've talked about being down the pub and we're off down the pub again. The Dragon and Flagon, Ronan. 
It's my stronghold games. It's the Engelsteins. It's Brian, Jeff, and Sydney with the player count suggested of five to eight players, but I've heard you can play it with less. Players are patrons of the Dragon and Flagon Inn. And as in many of the pubs we go to, Ronan, a fight is about to break out. Each of the players will choose a character with a common set of cards, plus some unique to them. The cards represent the actions that you can take during the ensuing brawl. Each action will take an amount of time. What are the actions? Well, you can move, you can pick up something, you can throw that object you've just picked up. You have your special actions. You can pull rugs from under each other. You can throw barrels at each other. You can even swing from the chandeliers and kick people in the face. The player tokens are that are along the side are on the time spaces, and they are moved along those time spaces, depending on the action you take. And eventually, the guards are going to turn up and stop the fight. Each time you hit someone, you're going to gain reputation from them. And at the end, the most reputation will be the winner. There is another side to the board where it flips and it becomes adjacent ships, and this is for team play. The dragon and flag and Ronan. Are you digging the pother? Jesus, most days. Wow. <laughs> what a great presentation. It's got those 3D pieces, very simple iconography, everything's clear, and it links through then, through the thematic special powers, the funny powers, the swinging, the cartoony artwork. It creates this whole situation fantastically well in that we are all about in the game or possibly outside the game but in the game anyway to slap each other around but it's gonna be fun it is the best presented game i've seen in a long time it kind of reminds me of the old hero quest tables and oh my god hero quest again covered. come on <laughs> and cupboards going in there which is one of the reasons I love that game you've got the sort of three dimensional look to the board you see yourself in the thing you can actually pick up f- flagons of mead and lob them across and you've got that physical aspect oh, it looks fantastic it really does I can't get over how well good this looks and that works perfectly with the chaotic gameplay. Again, it links through. When you see a game like this, when it's funny, and you say, this is going to be chaos, but it's a drunken barbarol, great. Chaos works in certain games, and it works here. They've hit the time frame just right. You're not going to be so invested that it's going to ruin the game, all this chaos around you. It's going to happen. It's going to be over fairly quickly. You're going to get slapped from random people. You're going to get hit in the head by things, and you're all going to be laughing. It's one of those games that you're going to talk about afterwards. I can't believe you. I can't believe you caught me with that chair. I dazed you, and then you got up and you swung at a completely empty space, and then someone kicked you up the backside. (laughs) Or, and I think this is going to be funny, Sean, that picking up that dragon flagon gives you access to your super duper power. The second someone picks that up, you can bet there's going to be a few stories centered on the scramble to get to them and give them a slap. 
And you've also got that sort of funny, not not frustrating, but funny little frustration in that some of the cards, I think it's the purple ones, if you get dazed, then you can't do your action for the next round. There's some actions you can do if you're lying down, and there's some that you can't. And it just adds to the chaos, adds to the fun. Also, Ronan, it really isn't a, a difficult game to learn and teach by the looks of it. No, and what we're talking about here is usually we kind of split theme and mechanisms up sometimes and discuss them and looks. We've rolled all three in here, and that just goes to show that they found the perfect blend. That points, that time point system is in other games, but I don't think I've ever seen it used as well as it is here with the programming because... Maybe you plan that big move, knowing it's going to cost you three or four time, but you've got to see what happens first. So you move ahead on the track, you're waiting to get your turn, and you go for it, and it misses, and you do nothing. you then got two or three time spaces there to hold your head in your hands going, oh, God, they're all slapping me around. I can't do anything about it. All linked in so well, Sean. Ease of play just goes with that. You can see the repercussions of what you're doing, although you don't know what they're exactly going to do on the board. Yeah, and I think that hits the right mark as well. You don't program too far ahead, but you do program a little bit ahead, so you you have to plan your moves slightly, and that's where it can all go wrong. But then you're back in it again. It feels kind of drunken, doesn't it, that you've got that one pause. Your body's <laughs> working slightly slower than your brain. You think, oh, I should do that. Oh, it's taken me 10 seconds longer than I thought it would. The fact they've added value to the game with the team play sounds fantastic. A four-on-four brawl. That would be so funny. The pirate ship variant where you've got the little things you can keep people in the water and stuff like that. They've added value to the whole package as well, Sean. It is. Absolutely, yeah. You just flip that board over and you've got a whole new... No, not a new game, but you've got a whole new thinking behind it. And a lot of people are saying, actually, the team variant is actually even more fun than just the the single player. So, importantly for you, apparently... And this is from Mr. Engelstein himself. When you know the game a little bit, playing two-player, four characters each, is absolutely hilarious. I have heard that. I have heard that. I, I actually have my slight doubts about that. I think... I think it's going to be better with the, with more players. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna, I, think, I think it's going to be a lot better. I think it probably is a passable fun. Passable? As, as we said, it's not going to last. Passable oh, with gosh. two players... I think you really want four players. I think you really want eight. I think you really want to have had a few. Yeah, you'd love it. (laughs) I think it just for what it does, it sounds absolutely perfect. I don't think any other game in its category comes close to this. So I've never been in a pub brawl myself. God forbid. But this sounds like what it maybe it might be like. So I'm gonna go dragon and flagon treasure. Well, I'm treasure all the way on this one. It just sounds like a barrel of fun. Oh, and, oh, oh, yeah. And I, I am almost definitely going to pick this one up, even if I can't play with two players. That is the Dragon and Flagon. So thank you so much for joining us on this long journey pre 
Essen. We hope you've enjoyed all the previews we've given you. We hope you're very excited, as we keep saying, probably because we are so excited. We're like two kids just before Christmas this week. Absolutely. I've got meetings with publishers lined up. We're going to be talking to designers. And as I said before, myself and Natalie will be on the Dice Tower booth on the Thursday at 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock. So please come along. We'll both be in our Game Pit t-shirts. Please say hello. So excited, Ronan. I fly out in 24 hours you Just lucky, a little bit more. Lucky, lucky boy. Lucky, lucky. <laughs> Spat on, your favourite. I'm guessing that means you'll be in your Game Pit t-shirt for all of Thursday, Sean. So people should look around for quite a tall figure. Not a rather a, a rather large chap. Not, not, not slimly not built. Either. I was going to say, you're built more like a rugby player than a badminton player. With a big, huge Game Pit t-shirt, t-shirt on. Yes, probably with a massive bag carrying all your games around. Yes, because you love me. So if you do see Sean, by all means, run up, give him a hug and rub his bald head for luck. Or come and say hello. One of the two. Uh, I prefer the first one, but well. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Again, you'll be hearing from us throughout the week covering Essen. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Rona. And would you like to see us out? We are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming goodness in a variety of podcasts. If you wish to contact us, we our email address is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a shout anytime if you've got any questions at all. We have a Board Game Geek Guild pop along there let us know how what you feel about the shows anything you liked anything you didn't like we're always looking for feedback and just general chatter as well we are on twitter at gamepit podcast we have a facebook page and we are also on instagram if you wish to download our episodes we're on podbean stitcher and of course itunes thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time music by e Aaron.